Okay, I know I'm going to piece off a few people with this episode, but I don't want to keep this to myself anymore. There is a combination of factors that, in my opinion, cause the demise of professional integrity and promotes unethical behavior that unfairly disadvantages professionals who are committed to maintaining high ethical standards. This is going to be a different episode. In this episode, I will tell you a fictional story that unfortunately is exactly how things happen in reality. I will also talk about the consequences. Now, you're going to hear a lot of sarcasm in my tone of voice. I will also come across as preachy. If you're someone who claims to be a best-selling author based on the process described in this episode, you may want to skip this episode altogether. And if you don't, know that my assumption is not that you're doing it to mislead people on purpose. My assumption is that you're doing it because everybody does it, or because someone talked you into it, or because you didn't think it through completely. Either way, I didn't record this episode to hurt anyone's feelings. If you still want to listen, let's start right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Let's start the story. So first, I'll talk about the characters in our story. So we have five characters. The first one is Grace. Grace has been a speaker, a professional speaker, for many years. She is a true expert in the field of business ethics. She has completed her doctoral dissertation on the topic, has done a lot of research, published several books. Uh, she never claimed any of them to be a best-selling book, by the way. The second... The second character is Sophie. Sophie is a beginning speaker. She is in her first year of business as a speaker. She doesn't know what she doesn't know yet about the business of being a speaker. She's very open to advice, including bad advice. The third person is John. John represents himself as, and this is what he is, uh, his, uh, I think it's his LinkedIn, yeah, his LinkedIn uh, subtitle, this is what it says, looking for authors, book publishers, and podcasters. As a consultant who also claims to be a nine-time number one best-selling author. By the way, I'm reading this directly from an email or, or actually a LinkedIn message that I received from a person named John. I, I'm not going to give you his last name. The fourth person is Emily. Emily is the associate event planner for a large association, and she's in charge of finding the keynote speaker for their upcoming annual event in six months. This is the first time that they're trusting her with finding a keynote speaker for that very important annual conference. 
This is the first time she's doing that. Finally, the fifth uh, character here, his name is Richard. Richard is a member of the conference committee. So sometimes the process of hiring a keynote speaker for a conference is you have a committee, uh, but you have someone who's typically on staff and gets a salary. The committee might actually be board members, people who may not be paid, although this can vary. The, the person, the Emily person here, uh, is the one on staff who's actually doing the work, but the committee needs to approve it. So these are our characters. Let's get ready for Act 1. Act 1. Day 1. Sophie just received a LinkedIn connection request from somebody that she doesn't know. His name is John, so they're not directly connected, and it's kind of an in-mail, in what's called an in-mail. So he can send her a connection request and put a note there. And here's what his message says in, in his connection request. Hi, Sophie. I'm looking to add new connections to my network and noticed we have some in common. Would you like to connect and see if there are mutual interests? Kind regards, John whatever his last name, CEO, publisher, and strategic marketer. Now, notice that this, this connection request is, is pretty, you know, harmless, right? He's, he's not suggesting to do any work for her. He is not saying, I'm trying to sell you something. All he's saying is he's trying to add connection to his network. And he saw that Sophie and him have some in common. Very, there is no reason for her not to answer. This seems harmless enough to Sophie. So she accepts the connection request. Doesn't even take five hours. By the way, I did receive that email, uh, that LinkedIn request from a John. And it didn't take five hours until Sophie, in this case, receives another message from John. And this is the actual wording of the LinkedIn request that I got, the message that I got from John. Hello, Sophie. Except he said, hello, Yoram. But that's besides the point. Hello, Sophie. Thank you for connecting with me here on LinkedIn. Just a quick note to say thanks for joining my personal network. So far, so good. I look forward to getting to know more about you. Oh, isn't that nice, right? Tell me what's your biggest challenge right now. Oh, that's, that's sweet of him, although it's kind of starting to look a little creepy because Sophie doesn't know uh, John. A little about me. Of course, we have to jump to talk about you, John. I'm a five-time best-selling author with several business and marketing books. I have been helping entrepreneurs for over 25 years to create books, products, and marketing strategies and generated personally over $25 million in sales. My company, I shall not name it, has been responsible. Maybe that should be a good name for a company. I shall not name it. My company, I shall not name it has been responsible for publishing over 150 books in the past 18 months, and all of them, without fail, have achieved number one bestseller status on Amazon. Now, at that point, Sophie doesn't know how this happens, and she's intrigued. So, you know, so far, it doesn't cost her anything. Of course, she's starting to realize that this is a sales speech. And she responds, I would love to achieve this status the best-selling status. I just finished writing my first book, so timing is perfect. How do I turn it into a bestseller? She still thinks that he's just going to tell her and she's going to do it. John's response is a link to schedule a call with him. 
they have the call. During that call, John tells Sophie how impressed he is with her success so far. He tells her that only a few people ever complete writing their first book, and she did. Her LinkedIn profile is very impressive. She doesn't think so, but doesn't matter. He strikes her ego so far as much as he can. He strokes her ego as much as he can. At the end of that call, she asks him, so how can I turn my book into a bestseller? She believes that he has a way to get millions of people to buy her book, which she really believes is good. She, she believes that she has a good book here. And, and she thinks that turning it into a bestseller means that he has the ways to get millions of people to buy it. In her head, she's starting to count the money that she would make from selling that book. John reveals to Sophie that he has a secret formula that was tested in which he helped 150 books and authors become a number one bestseller status on Amazon, which is exactly what he wrote on his LinkedIn message. Now, Sophie says that she was hoping to become a New York Times or Wall Street Journal bestselling author, but she decided that, you know, it doesn't matter, probably. So she says... How do I do it? And John makes the following promise. He says, I charge $1,500 for the process. It would take one week and you will reach a best-selling author status by that time. If I'm unsuccessful, that's what he promises her, I guarantee your money back. How does that sound? Now, frankly, it actually sounds a little fishy to Sophie. I mean, how can anybody get millions of books be sold in one week. Nobody knows her, right? So so how would that happen? She's not rich. This is her first year in business. She's barely getting one or two keynotes done. She has to discount them very significantly. But this is important. Now, one thing that she remembers is another email that she saw from somebody else who wrote this. Becoming a best-selling author has catapulted my credibility as a speaker given me ability to raise my speaking fees and allowed me to generate more revenue after my speaking engagement. By the way, I got that email. I got an email that said exactly that. This, this was a direct copy and paste from that email. So Sophie decides she's going to pay and try it. Act 2. Now, John asked her to publish her book on Amazon's KDP publishing platform. That's, that's the, the platform that, that Amazon has to publish books, any kind of books, uh, uh, paperback, Kindle, hardcover. Sophie says that her book isn't ready. It wasn't even proofed. Uh, but John says, don't worry, you can always modify the manuscript later and upload a new manuscript. Right now, all we need is just to get the ball rolling on the process. We, we need to upload something. Doesn't matter what. Make it a draft. Make, make it something, nothing. Just upload something. It, it doesn't matter if your book is not ready. So he asked her to send him the files. So she does. She sent him the files. The next thing John does is he creates a KDP account for Sophie. He uploads the half-done book and makes sure that it is accepted by KDP. He prices it at $14.95, which is what Sophie says. This is how she wants to price the book. Before selecting categories, 
he goes to a website that would allow him to find what's called the least competitive book category on Amazon. So remember this term, the least competitive book category on Amazon. If you just Google this term, you're going to come up with a few, uh, a few websites that would give you those lists. And he finds that the category foreign languages, Japanese, fantasy, horror, and science fiction is the least competitive. The first book uh, in this category uh, ranks at a total of... So, so the, the ranking from the top, if the best-selling book on Amazon, like the one that sells the most, ranks number one, the book that ranks number one in this category is ranked total on Amazon 446,462. He opens another website. Then he checks the BSR, that's book sales ratio, I think, to sales calculator or book sales ranking to sales calculator. So again, if you go and Google BSR to sales calculator, you're going to find a few of those calculators. And since they're using data from Amazon, they're all going to give you exactly the same numbers. He enters that number. Remember, the number one book in the category of foreign languages, Japanese, fantasy, horror, and science fiction, which, by the way, has nothing to do with uh, business ethics, which is the topic of her book, but that doesn't matter for now. So he checks, and this ranking, a, a general, a global ranking of 446,462, uh, requires sales of, or e equates to a sales of six books per month. He thinks that's great. All we need is to sell seven books in a month to hit a number one in this category. Not overall for Amazon, in this category. So he selects this category for Sophie's book. Once again, even before, even though Sophie's book is really about business ethics. The number one uh, best-selling book in this category right now is actually the Japanese translation of The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I think I said it right. So he uploads the book as a Kindle book, an, an e-book, an electronic book. That was day one. Day two, a day later, he get uh, he gets an email from Amazon that the book was published. No problems, no issues. Frankly, Amazon really doesn't have a lot of uh, checks on what they will publish and, and what not. I mean, they don't have issue with proofing. They don't have issues with a lot of things. He sends an email to Sophie notifying her that the success of the success of the first step, getting her book published. Sophie is so excited, even though something doesn't feel right to her. She's worried that the book is not really complete and is probably full of grammar issues, but she lets the excitement take over. I mean, you know, it's her first year. It's really hard. And, you know, she now has a published book. So, yes, there are things that need to be done, but she now has a published book. By the way, so far, John made met every promise that he made her. He must be the real deal. Now, John goes into Sophie's account dashboard and reduces the book price from $14.95 to $0.99 cents as a promotion. You can do that as a promotion, which, by the way, $0.99 cents is the minimum that Amazon would allow Kindle Book to be sold for and still rank as a... Um, 
paid in, in the paid books category uh, or rankings. Uh, because if you do it below that, then then it's it's free books, which you can you can put it in as free books. But he wants it to be in the paid books rankings. He sets the time for the promotion to five days, which is pretty much the maximum uh, the promotion can run for. Now John sends Sophie a link to the book and a text for an email that he asked her to send to all her friends or at least 20 of them. Remember, we only need seven to get to number one in that category. Better be on the safe side. Let's send it to 20. Here's what the email reads. I have a huge announcement to make. My book is available. The anticipation is over and the time has come. My book is live on Amazon. Yet I don't want you to buy the book. Until tomorrow, Wednesday, March 11th. Please keep an eye out for an email from me tomorrow around 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern, so that you can buy the Kindle version of this special price, at this special price. Your help is crucial. The success of a book is very often determined by what happens in the first hours and days of that book's release. In order to impact as many people as possible with my message, my publisher and I are aiming for Amazon best-selling status for my book. So I would be honored if you took the time to buy the book tomorrow. Your 99-cent purchase will help the book launch and, in doing so, help more people. Please buy the Kindle version, as opposed to another version, as this offer offers the best bet at becoming an Amazon bestseller. Thank you so much for your support. Just so that you know, that is actually the text of an email that I received from someone. Okay? Sophie, again, is a bit concerned. Something does not feel right. But John came through so far, so she decides to continue. She writes the email using the text that she got from John and sends it to 40 of her friends and associates. Better safe than sorry, remember? After all, John said that he can guarantee the results or money back only if she does everything that he says. That evening, Sophie gets another email from John. She didn't expect to hear from him this soon. This email asked her to send a second email to the same people and maybe even more, but this time with the following content. Now, he says, don't send it before 12 noon Eastern. He, he emphasizes that. The second email reads this. The anticipation is over and the time has come. My book is now live on Amazon and I would greatly appreciate your help. The success of a book and its impact is often affected by how it does in the first few days or even first few hours. For this reason, I have reduced the Kindle price to only 99 cents today only. Here is how you can help. Click here, there is a link, to buy the book. This is for the 99 cent Kindle version, which I have priced just for this Kindle launch. Whether you read Kindle versions of books or not, your purchase of the Kindle version will really help me out. And you can read Kindle books on all smartphones, table, tablets, and, and even on your computer. P.S. If you have trouble buying the Kindle version through your app, just look it up online at Amazon.com. Please take advantage of this right away. Also, 
If you know anyone else who would benefit from this book, then share this email and link with them. I would greatly appreciate it. And we're sure, and I'm sure, uh, they will too. Please get your copy now. Thank you so much for your help and support. Just so that you know, that is actually the exact text of the second email I received from that person. This, these are real emails that I received. Now, Sophie has a knot in her stomach, and that knot is tightening. Something is fishy. Something doesn't feel right. But she feels that she's deep enough in the thick of it, so she continues. Day three. The next morning, she sends the second email, but not before 12 Eastern time, as John said she should as she promised. At about 5 p.m., Sophie is getting multiple messages from John through LinkedIn, emails, text messages. Your book is a bestseller, he exclaims in them. Check it out. He provides her a link to the foreign languages, Japanese, fantasy, horror, and science fiction category on Amazon, where Sophie can see that her book ranks as number one. No words can describe her excitement. I'm a best-selling author, she cries. Tears drop from her eyes. She feels so accomplished. John asks her to take a screenshot of that screen that shows her book is number one. She does, and so does he. Next, John adds the number one best-selling icon, icon to the artwork of the book cover and uploads it again, just the book cover. He sends her an email indicating that she has reached a best-selling author status on Amazon, as promised, in less than a week. So she kind of lost her opportunity to ask for her money back. I mean, she got what she asked for. She got what he promised. That's what he says. Sophie believes that the fact that her friends bought the book somehow made Amazon recommend this book to millions of people who then bought it. And she's excited thinking about the amount of royalties she will be making from these sales. By the way, at 99 cents, you don't make royalties, but that's besides the point. John came through for her. At least that's what she thinks to herself. Per his instructions, she adds the words best-selling authors to her LinkedIn profile, to her eSpeakers profile, and on her website, along with a new cover design that now shows the Amazon number one bestseller status. X4. That evening, short, uh, Sophie shares the good news with her father. Daddy, I'm a best-selling author, she says, and, and shares the screen with him, showing that her book ranks number one. Still, it's still number one. Now, her father is excited, like, like I would be of my daughters. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm elated. But then he notices something and asks, and, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm an ass of a father because I would have asked the same thing. He asks, Sophie, why is this book listed in the foreign languages, Japanese fantasy, horror, and science fiction category? I, I thought this was a book about business ethics. I mean, that's, that's what it says, doesn't it? Now, Sophie doesn't know what to think. The font is so small for the category that she didn't even notice it before. But she believes that it doesn't matter and, and assures her dad that 
you know, this might be a typo or something. Just to be on the safe side, she sends an email to John and asks about it. John responds pretty curtly. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that it's listed as number one. That's it. Now, Sophie feels a little more uncomfortable than she was before. But you know what? Number one is number one. At the end of the first month, Sophie gets a royalty notification from Amazon. She opens the email and clicks on the link to go to her dashboard. And apparently, 13 copies of the book were sold. Now, she's taken aback a little. She, I mean, she expected millions or at least thousands or tens of thousands. Or, but, but it's 13 copies in, in the entire month. She goes back to check the position of her book in the best-selling list. And now it's listed as number 15. A month later, it lists at number 47. And another month later, uh, later, it's not even in the top 100 list even for that category. At some point after the book was edited, she does upload a new manuscript of the book. She feels a lot more comfortable uh, with the, the content, the manuscript itself. It's free of grammatical errors as much as possible. But she doesn't change the cover design because the cover design still shows this as an Amazon number one bestseller, even though it's not a bestseller in any category. And if you think the story is over and no harm, no foul, get ready as we start Act 6. See, about three months later, Emily... Remember Emily? She's the associate media planner, meeting planner of the XYZ Association. She's given a new task. For the first time, she is trusted with finding a keynote speaker for their upcoming annual conference. The topic of the conference is business ethics, so she starts looking for an expert on the topic who's also a good speaker because she's looking for a keynote speaker. She finds two possible speakers, Grace... Remember Grace? Grace is a published author. Grace has done her research on business ethics. She's been in business for many years. She's really an expert in this topic. And Sophie. Sophie is a new speaker. This is still her first year in business. Now, Emily doesn't know Grace or Sophie and she's starting to read about both of them. They both seem to know a lot about business ethics, but, you know, the West website can be misleading. I mean, we are the ones who design our website. We're the ones putting content in there or into LinkedIn or into eSpeakers. Then she sees it. While Grace is a published author, Sophie is the best-selling author. That's what it says. Uh, just to be sure, she, she checks LinkedIn, she checks eSpeakers, she checks the website. All of them say, best-selling author. Emily smiles with delight. She now knows that she has found her keynote speaker. Sophie, knowing that a part of the event has the speaker-author sign their books, it makes her happy that she can bring a best-selling author, not just an author, a best-selling author. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, the movie The Three Amigos. I don't know if you remember when uh, they were talking about El Guapo. And El Guapo is the infamous El Guapo because he was, I don't know, a murderer or whatever, a gang leader. 
but but the way they read infamous El Guapo, they read he's not just famous, he is infamous, which is even better than famous. So Emily is going to bring Sophie because Sophie is a best-selling author. She reaches out to Sophie and he's very impressed with her. She doesn't have a lot of background to, to know how good Sophie is, but she is, after all, a best-selling author. Sophie, on her side, is very excited to get that call from Emily. It's been a hard first year for uh, for her in business. She didn't get too many speaking engagements, and she understands it's going to take time, but she didn't think it was going to take that long. And for that reason... Any call is a good call, and, and she's extremely happy that Emily wants to hire her to deliver the keynote for her conference. She doesn't know that the whole reason Emily wants to hire her is because she read that Sophie is a best-selling author. That, that's what the profile says. So after going all the details, uh, Emily decides to make a recommendation to the event committee to hire Sophie as the keynote speaker. The committee accepts her recommendation. They probably don't have time to go through it. They, they trust her. They accept her recommendation. Her boss, Emily's boss, is happy with how quickly she found the speaker. The plot thickens. Act 7. About a month before the event, Richard... Remember Richard? He's one of the committee members. He calls Emily and he asks her about the keynote speaker that she chose. And he asked her because he knows something about business ethics and he knows uh, some great names. And he asked her, have you ever heard of Grace? You remember the first speaker, the one who actually researched business ethics for her dissertation and published a few books, has been in business for many years. So have you heard of, of Grace? He asked her. She's considered a real thought leader in the area of business ethics. Was she not available for our date? He asks Emily. Now, Emily is taken aback a little because asking those questions two months ago would have been much more productive than a month before the event. But, you know, she still, Emily, still feels comfortable with her decision. So she replies with confidence, yes, I did consider Grace, but knowing that we have a book signing after the keynote, I like the fact that Sophie is actually a best-selling author. Wouldn't it be better for our audience if the book that they get and, and get signed is a best-selling book and the author is a best-selling author? So Richard asked her, how do you know that she's a best-selling author and, and that this is a best-selling book? Now, Emily is starting to doubt herself. Well, her LinkedIn and eSpeakers profiles indicate that. I mean, she, she knows that looking at the website is not where she wants to look, but uh, it's also on the cover of her book. I mean, the cover of her book says that it's a bestseller, an Amazon number one bestseller. Emily is starting to get a little apprehensive because she feels that her decision is being challenged. And guess what? It is. Richard persists. Have you checked the sales of her book, of Sophie's book? He asks Emily. Well, Emily says, I, I didn't know that you can check these things. Isn't that information confidential? Well, not really, Richard replies to her. Uh, he can feel em Emily's apprehension, by the way, and so he takes a little gentler approach with Emily, mo more of a coach than, than a critic, than, than a judge. 
Let's find it together, he says. So Richard first instructs Emily to look up the book on Amazon. So Richard fi uh, Emily finds it. Now he tells her to scroll down to the product details section of the book listing. Over there, he asks her about the bestsellers rank. By the way, he's doing everything in parallel to her. It shows that the book ranks number 735,128 in the Kindle store from the top, 253 in the foreign languages, Japanese, fantasy, horror, and science fiction uh, category, and 9,196 in the business ethics category. I, I still don't know what this means, Emily says to Richard. So Richard says, well, let's go to a BSR to sales calculator. He Googles the term. He doesn't remember the, the link up front, but and the link shows up. There is a field that allows him to enter the BSR rank. Again, that's the bestseller ranking number. And he enters the overall Kindle store ranking, which is 735,128 from the top. He clicks on the button calculate sales and the field called sales per month shows in number three this book sells three books per month he tells emily would you would you consider it a best-selling book needless to say that emily feels what emily feels right now she feels pretty stupid she has been misled by Sophie. Let me fix it, she says. She reaches out to Sophie to ask about her findings. Actually, Richard's findings. Now, Sophie is embarrassed. She described the process she followed under John's guidance. Now, Sophie did not intend to mislead Emily. She was fooled by someone who feeds on people like her, beginning speakers. He, he told her this is how everybody becomes a number one best-selling author. Unfortunately, to some extent, he's right. Emily, at this point, is furious. This has, Maybe she's not furious at, at Sophie, but her fury, by the way, changes really quickly into fear because she is afraid she's going to lose her job. She's never going to get a, uh, a, a good recommendation letter. She's probably going to trash her name in the industry as being a meeting planner, which is what she wanted to do. It's the first time that she was given the responsibility of hiring a keynote speaker, and she made such a rookie mistake. She hangs up the phone and tries reaching out to Grace. Unfortunately, Grace's calendar is already booked at the day of the event. Now, I want to wrap this up. I'm done with the story. I want to wrap this up with, with a letter. But before I get to the letter, did Emily get fired? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Did they end up hiring Sophie? And if so, did she do a good job? Maybe she did. Maybe not. But that's not the point. The point is that Emily had risked her career because she was misled by Sophie. By the way, again, Sophie did not do this on purpose. She was fooled into believing that what she did was ethical and legitimate, and it wasn't. It was a practice taught to her by someone who has done it before and didn't care about crossing ethical lines. 
And of all things, she is a business ethics speaker for crying out loud. So how did we get here? Well, to tell you how we got here, I actually want to read to you a letter that I wrote to the National Speakers Association about this practice. And I think that the best thing I can do right now is actually read the letter to you. So here it goes. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a bestseller as an article, such as a book, whose sales are among the highest of its class. Encyclopedia Britannica defines it as bestseller book that, for a time, for a time, leads all others in this kind in, in its kind of sales, a designation that serves as an index of popular literary taste, literary taste and judgment. Does the process I described to you meet those requirements? Maybe an even better question is, would you consider someone who uses this process as someone who meets the above definitions of a best-selling author or a bestseller? But there's something else. Amazon is not saying that you are, as in currently, a best-selling author. Amazon said that your book was the top best-selling book on a specific date in a particular category. But it doesn't say it anymore. Is your book still ranked number one, even in that subcategory? So in this case, maybe the proper wording that you should put on your profile is not a best-selling author, but rather was an Amazon best-selling author in the fantasy, horror, and science fiction in Japanese category on September 20th, 2023. That would be a much more accurate description of your best-selling author status than saying that you are a best-selling author. Uh, the, the second part of that email is titled, We Don't Really Do This, Do We? Of some 21,000 speakers in the eSpeakers database, 898 self-identified as authors. Of those 898, 831, almost all of them, self-identified as best-selling authors. By the way, I'm one of those who is listed as an author, but not as a best-selling author. I'm one of the few, the 67. Out of that number, we picked, uh, and so I, I, I did a research and I actually used my daughter to help me. We picked a random sample of 106 speakers and found the following. 66 of the 106 speakers were listed only as Amazon best-selling authors, not New York Times, the Washington Post, or USA Today or anything else, Amazon. Of those 66, only one held the number one place in the subcategory, two were in the top 10 in their subcategory, and 20 were in the top 100. The average ranking in a subcategory, a subcategory, not overall, the average rank was 835 from the top. As a reminder, being one in the subcategory is what those speakers used to justify stating they were best-selling authors. So, they're not even in the top of the subcategory they used to claim best-selling status. In the overall list, none were even in the top 1,000. The highest place for any of those 66 speakers on the list was 1,623. And, and that was the same person who held the number one position in the subcategory. 
the average ranking of the main list in the main list was 9,000, I'm sorry, 954,487 from the top, a million from the top. And when it's translated into books sold, this means that less than one book was sold per month. In fact, being ranked lower than 500,000 already implies that they sold less than one book per month. Only 22 of the 106 best-selling authors, in quotes, were ranked higher than 500,000 from the top, meaning that they sold more than one book per month each. Only 22 of 106 that claimed to be best-selling authors were selling more than one book per month. Only three of the 106 were selling more than 10 books per month each, which means that 103 of the 106 were selling less than 10 books per month. Would you consider these bestsellers? Would you consider them best-selling authors based on these numbers? It's amazing, isn't it? Here is a real-life example. This, this is from the, uh, uh, the letter that I wrote. On day one, a speaker posted on Facebook a one-day deal on his book on Kindle for $1.99 instead of the much higher price, the regular price of over $12. That day, the book reached the top, number one place, in three appropriate subcategories, even though it was only 1,908 in the top overall paid books in the Kindle store. On day three, the book declined to places nine, two, and two in those three subcategories, and number 8,790 in the overall list. On day four, the book declines to num- declined to number 180 and 1,056 of two of the subcategories. It didn't appear in the third subcategory anymore. And overall in booked, in books, it ranked 48,647. That book listed in the speaker's e-speaker profile as best-selling, ranked in place 145,748 six months later. That speaker is still indicating a best-selling author status in their profile today. The next part of this uh, 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 letter that I wrote was why should you not do it? Why you shouldn't do it? Reason number one. Now, you may think nobody really believes that when I present myself as a best-selling author, I really sell a lot. Well, first of all, if you believe that, then why use the practice at all? If you think that nobody really thinks that you're selling a lot of books, then why use? Why do this? But we both know that some people still think that a best-selling author sells many books, or at least more than 10 books one day three years ago. And when they find out, well, we just contributed to the demise of an important and prestigious term, a best-selling author. Reason number two, why are you doing it? To distinguish yourself and, and give yourself an advantage over another speaker when being considered for a speaking engagement? like Sophie really did over Grace? Is it fair to the other speaker that the advantage is based on a misleading statement that the other speaker chose not to use? Because they did not want to mislead. 
I don't call myself best-selling author. In fact, there was a time where in LinkedIn, I wrote in my tagline, not a best-selling author. And I did that. I do that pretty much every time uh, I present on ethics. Is that the best way to take business away from your fellow member, your fellow speaker? Specifically in that letter, I said your fellow NSA member. Reason number three why you shouldn't do it. Every person who practices this behavior further lowers the overall NSA ethical bar. It's easy to say, but everybody's doing it. First, not everybody's doing it. I'm not doing it, and I know a lot of people who don't do it. But second, isn't that rationalization, everybody's doing it, isn't it rationalization to do something that you know is not right? Give yourself some credit for stopping this trend rather than flowing with it. Reason number four, our trust in another person is the product of their trustworthiness and our trustfulness, which is our willingness to trust people in general or a type of people in general. Harmful practices like those that I described here, once they are realized by others that they are just misleading, they would give speakers in general and NSA members in particular a bad reputation that would cause our clients not to trust us speakers. They're not going to make the distinction of who does it and who doesn't. They're just not going to trust us. Not more than a used car salesperson anyway. What if someone finds out? Here's the reason number five. Imagine that a client, a meeting planner just like Emily, bought your best-selling author status, considered it an important criterion, not just a speaker and an author, but a best-selling author, and decided to select you over someone else who does not have that designation. I already addressed the, the, the unfairness towards the other speaker, but now I'm talking about you. Imagine that the meeting planner after hiring you, speaking with another member of the team, just like Emily did with Richard, who is familiar with that practice, that member goes on Amazon, checks your book to find that it ranks where it ranks today and that it's nowhere near the best-selling status that you claim to be. They now make fun of the gullibility of your client. In this case, Woods Emily. Was it fair to put her in such a position, to put your client in such a position? Do you think they would hire you again? Do you think they might tell others what they found about you? And the last reason is NSA's code of ethic, ethics. That's the reason number six. The, if nothing of the above convince you, convince you to abandon this practice, then there is always this pesky NSA code of ethics that has Article 1, representation. The NSA member has the obligation to oneself and to NSA to represent oneself truthfully, professionally, and in a non-misleading manner. The NSA member shall be honest and accurate in presenting qualifications and experience in the member's communication with others. Hopefully, I, I don't need to read to you what the dictionary definition of the word misleading is to make this point. Does this practice violate the NSA Code of Ethics? Doesn't it? Well, there's a problem here. 
This practice is so pervasive that if NSA decides to go after everyone who practices it, it's going to lose too many members. So is a violation that is not being enforced, should we, NSA members, police ourselves then? The last part that, that I have in, in that letter is what should you do or what to do when you see somebody else doing it? Start by assuming that they haven't considered the six reasons not to do it. They're like Sophie. They're inexperienced. They're naive. Uh, assume that someone talked them into this practice like John did to Sophie or that they were affected by peer pressure. Here is what not to do. Don't publicly shame them for identifying as best-selling authors. Shaming is one of the most potent emotions. Shame is. Using it publicly has a tremendous effect. However, public shaming might cause resentment and turn a villain into a victim. Don't privately shame them either. For, for someone to change their behavior, they must be in a place where they can listen. People don't listen well when you make them feel ashamed. They may change their behavior, but for the wrong reasons and forever resent that and you. Provide this feedback when the other person is ready to take it and where they feel comfortable enough. Before offering that unsolicited feedback, just ask them, is this a good time? Is this a good place to provide you with feedback? Number four, educate. Hopefully this article gave you enough ammunition to explain why they should stop this practice. This probably never considered, they probably never considered what I presented to you in this article, what I told you in the story. And once they do, they will see the rationale for stopping it. Number five, seek acknowledgement, not a commitment. Often people need time to digest what you told them. Don't ask them to make a commitment. Just ask them to acknowledge that they heard you and that they understood. The rest is up to them, not to you. And finally, remember that ethics are in the eyes of the beholder. Just because you consider something unethical doesn't mean that everybody else does. Just like if you consider something ethical, it doesn't mean that everybody else does that either. So the summary, this, this is actually the summary paragraph of the letter, but it's also going to be the summary of this podcast episode. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't mislead your clients. Don't hurt other speakers who do not follow this practice. Don't lower the NSA ethical standards. Don't give speakers a bad name. Just don't do it. In a world that loses its way, where the ethical standards keep eroding, we, professional speakers, thought leaders, can take the moral high ground and help fix it through our behavior. We have that power. Let's be part of the solution, not part of the, the problem. Now, can we agree that selling six books per month doesn't make you a real best-selling author? You know, I, I have to go back to that email. Becoming a best-selling author had catapulted my credibility as a speaker. Really? Did it catapult your credibility as a speaker? The fact that you misled other people? It, ga it gave given me the ability to raise my speaking fees based on what? And allowed me to generate more revenue after my speaking uh, engagements. Really? Based on the fact that you misled people to read that you're a best-selling author. 
Are we misleading people if we claim to be uh, best-selling authors and as a result raise our fees and generate more revenue? Emily may not have been able to find another good speaker on such a short notice and ended up with Sophie, keep her, keeping her fingers crossed. Sophie might have been a great speaker despite her little experience. Maybe she deserved that break. Emily may not have lost her job. But the premise for Emily to hire Sophie was misleading, and that's a problem. Now, why does it happen? There is a cycle that starts with the fact that people only read headlines, combined with the fact that people are trusting, maybe too much for their own good. We don't have time to read more than a tagline, and we don't have a reason to suspect what you're saying. If your title says best-selling author, then you're a best-selling author. Why would I challenge it? Why would I spend time to check? Until I do. And when the whole thing blows up, it blows up in my face as the meeting planner, as well as in your face if you get called out for that. And you will get called out for that at some point. So let me ask you, if this blew up in your face and a meeting planner found out and unhired you, was it worth it? If Emily would have lost her job, was it worth it? Shouldn't you promote yourself based on your actual value than on gaming the Amazon algorithm? I guess you can tell I'm passionate about this. I'm not a best-selling author. None of my books is a best-selling book. I never claimed for them to be, even though I, I can take any one of my books and in 24 hours and for $10 spent by my friends, by the way, get it to be a best-selling uh, best in the foreign languages, Japanese, fantasy, horror, and science fiction category. I care about my industry and I don't want it to be associated with practices like that. It's just not worth it. Trust me. Well, this is it for today. May trust be with you. This was The Trust Show. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.